Well, good morning once again. Uh, if I didn't say it, my name is Rich. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And um, it is great to worship with you this morning. It is great to hear your voices, uh, to join together corporately to sing praise to our God. As we begin, I want to make sure to point out in your bulletin on the inside right, there is a, a blank space there. That is designed for you to use for notes, jotting down questions, verses, ideas, if you need to doodle, whatever you need to do to stay uh, connected to this morning's teaching, that's there for you. We are in week two of a four-week series on the topic of worship, and if you missed last week's introduction that Greg did, I highly recommend you going back and listening to it. It was a fantastic sermon. Um, Today, we are discussing the idea of what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. It's a phrase that gets used a lot in the church. It's, it's from the Bible, but what exactly does that mean? Uh, what does it look like in our day-to-day -day life to do that? And as I begin, I want to be clear. Today, as I touch on this topic, I'm definitely not going to be touching everything that there is on this particular topic. And even in a four-week series on worship, I, it's impossible for us to cover all that there is. Every one of us here, if we were to talk about worship and what it means to us, would have different answers, different opinions, different preferences, different experiences. And we can all remember times when we had great experiences of worship and other times not so much. Even this morning, there may have been certain songs that you felt really connected to, others completely not. Just doing a word study on the specific word worship, you'll find literally hundreds of places in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, that talk about this idea. And the word worship is translated in many ways as well, including but not limited to, to fall down or to fall on your knees in front of, or to kneel or to be kneeling down. It's often translated humility or reference or to pay homage to. And the context in which that word gets used affects our understanding of it as well. For example, worship as a response to something, or worship as adoration, or worship as a sacrifice, or worship as a proclamation. And just talking about this, though, I, I got to say I get excited about this conversation for us today because I think it's really timely for us as a church. Why? Well, I believe that during the last kind of six months specifically, but for quite some time we've been worshiping here at One Life, I believe God has been taking us on a journey. And in that, I feel like God has been marking us with a deeper experience of God's presence. And the way this has come out has been through the evidence of God's faithfulness to provide and to lead us and to give us a renewed vision and call. And these movements of the Spirit cause us to trust God more and increase our desire to give God glory. The Holy Spirit has been moving and leading us in new ways. The Spirit has been rekindling in us a passion to reach out of our comfort zones, to serve, to love, and to care for those who live in our community that don't know Jesus. And if you were here last week, you heard Greg talk about this, what it means to worship. And he said, worship at its very core, is just what we do. Worship is what we do. It's the act of giving ourselves to something. That we do it at every moment of every day with every breath we take, every action and movement of our will, we are always giving our allegiance to something or someone. That we're always lifting the importance of something above something else. 
And as Greg shared, we do this all the time, whether we have any awareness of it or not. Along with this kind of definition, he explored the story of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple and how oftentimes we need to be refocused, that we lose sight of what's most important, that being worship and the praise of God. And he challenged us last week to ponder the areas that Jesus might be overturning in our lives so that we would refocus. It was really good. And again, over the last six months or so, though, I believe that's what's been happening here at our church in many ways. In many ways, we've been going through the same process, that God, through the Holy Spirit, has been moving in our midst, turning over the tables in each of our lives, in our church, in our practices, and in our focus. Some of you remember six months ago, we came together moving forward as one, in one service, and we started a series in the book of Ephesians, and we called the series Rooted and Renewed. And in this series, we heard the Holy Spirit awaken us and remind us of some really important things. For example, in Ephesians 2, we heard this message. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in the old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. And I want us to note that language around breathing and what comes into our lungs. It goes on. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. Now, God has us where he wants us. Saving is all his idea and all his work. And we, all we do is trust him enough to let him do that. I love that. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. And then the last thing we heard, he creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Man, this was the beginning in many ways of a bit of a reset for us. And then we got into our John series and saw Jesus, again, doesn't operate by the world's timing, by his agenda, or by what is cool or culturally hip. That Jesus is far bigger than we imagine, and we're given this invitation in that gospel to come and follow his ways. From there, we moved into this series in the book of Acts, where we looked at this incredible movement of the empowering of the Holy Spirit, launching the church into existence with a call to reach out to literally everyone. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's in this place that our vision of following Jesus, loving people, and serving the city began to take deeper root in us. We continued to have our tables overturned in many ways at our retreat. We had this speaker named Brian Turnbull who challenged us in very practical ways what it looks like to actively be reaching out to our community, how to serve in our day-to-day life. And we heard the Holy Spirit over and over again through our worship and prayer times, through our teaching, as well as speaking through us as people, giving us a call to being more outward in our thinking, to be missional in our way of living, 
and not to fear. That's a big thing we've been hearing over and over again, to be engaged with the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day lives. We just finished our Advent series and it echoed the same thing. Keep watch, be aware, prepare, magnify, fear not, and go. We've been listening and responding, and we are moving. And as we shared over the last two weeks, we're moving forward in 2017 with an exciting launch of a new midweek dinner church down in the Magnuson Community Center, as well as being a parent church for a brand new church plant in the the greater Seattle metro area. And I am so excited. I'm excited about what God is doing. But what I want us all to see and engage with today is that all of this comes out of a heart of worship. All of this movement of the Spirit comes out of our worship practices. And the story we're looking at today perfectly illustrates this. So if you have your Bibles and you would be able to please turn to John 4, we're going to turn to verse 6 and go from there. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Um, It will be displayed behind me. Um, And you can follow along that way. But before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, as we just sang this song and prayer of calling upon you to breathe on us again, we ask that, that that would be our prayer. Holy Spirit, that you would move as you have been in and through us that you would teach us, that we would hear you, and we would respond according to your will. And God, today as we learn more about what it means to worship you, help us to become more and more equipped to do so. We want to be true worshipers. So we thank you in advance for this time that you're here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, if you have your Bible, you can follow along. John chapter 4 is behind me as well. It says this. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. It was about noon. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to to draw water. And he told her, go call your husbands and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husbands. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're now, you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I, can't, I can see that you're a prophet. 
Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of the worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, big text. Thanks for sticking with me. Right off the bat, it's important to note that when we tend to look at the story, it's typically with the idea of evangelism in mind. And it is a great example, a story of evangelism. But it's also a story that has very profound teaching on the nature of worship for the Christian. And I love that there's a connection of worship and the outward movement of the spirit. But I also love that we have kind of the red letter edition. These are straight teachings from Jesus himself. And there's so much just in this text beyond all the other texts that talk about worship. So I want to make sure we just dive right in. The first thing that we see in this text is how worship and outreach are connected. And it's very important for us to understand because it can get confusing in the church. What I see here is that evangelism is not, I say it again, is not the ultimate goal of the church. What we see here is that worship is. And the only reason evangelism even exists is because true worship isn't happening. I want you to think of it this way. Evangelism in and of itself is a temporary necessity. But worship, however, goes on forever. Another way of saying this is that the goal of evangelism is to help create true worshipers. And note what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman. It says that God is seeking people who will worship him. I hope that language reminds us of the stories in Luke 15, these parables of lost things. There's the, the lost sheep, there's the lost coins, there's the lost son. Jesus, Jesus is telling us about God's heart, about God's desires, and God's purpose and what these passages together tell us side by side is that God is searching for the lost, wanting everyone to be brought back into relationship with God in order to worship. In other words, worship is the ultimate goal of our outreach. But it's also very important to see that worship is also the motivation for us to ever reach out. Remember that Jesus goes on after this section we read to tell his disciples, who, by the way, are totally in shock that he's even having this conversation with the Samaritan woman. He tells them that he has this food from the Father that they don't know of. You see, Jesus knows the surpassing worth of the Father, and it's his passion for his Father's glory that sustains him in his mission to love all. And so what that means for us is that, that when our worship is on fire, when it's burning brightest, our desire for outreach will do the same. Or the flip side is that when our worship is weak or inconsistent or distracted, our outreach 
And our desire to do so is going to be weak. It's going to be inconsistent. It's going to be distracted. So the outward movement of the Spirit ultimately begins and ends with worship, as does ultimately everything in the Christian life. And this is what I believe has been happening here at One Life. We've been together as one, just like today, worshiping, engaging in the Word, led by the Spirit, and it's out of these times that we are then able to respond with passion, to reach out, to serve, and to desire to love all. Now, this connection between worship and outreach is really good for us to know. But there's a lot more in here that Jesus specifically teaches us about worship that's really important for us to understand. Next thing we see is that worship is not a question of where, but of who and of how. So, this woman and the disciples are stunned by the initiative that Jesus takes to speak to the Samaritan woman. Culturally, it's bad enough that he's talking to a woman in those days, but it's even worse that she's a Samaritan. And if we remember who the Samaritans were, they were these like half-breeds, literally, that came about around 720 BC, and they were considered the worst, the farthest from God's reach. The Samaritans then, in this kind of breed that they have, developed their own place of worship on Mount uh, Gerizim. And they had rejected the Old Testament except for their own versions of the five um, books of Moses. And by the time Jesus is having this conversation, the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was hundreds of years old. Which, again, I love that Jesus is purposely living out the reality that he doesn't distinguish between male and female and Jew and Gentile and slave or free or Samaritan. He's seeking us all. Everyone. But what we see here is that after Jesus has gotten super personal, he started touching on things that were very personal to this woman. She has this classic reflex, which is, let's change the topic, right? You're touching on my husband's and the, the marriage and where I'm not and all these things. And she has this very vulnerable moment with Jesus and she tries to shift the conversation in a way that hopes it will be a lot less personal. So out of nowhere, she says in verse 20, our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, which seems so out there, right? Jesus hears this change of direction without hesitation, continues to discuss worship with her, and makes a very important point. He says this, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So Jesus' answer is that worship is no longer connected to a particular location or building. He's telling the Samaritan woman, don't get caught up on non-essential controversies. Where you worship is not nearly as important as the issue of how and whom you worship. Now, this was a radical viewpoint for both the Samaritan and the Jew at the time. Not only would this completely catch the Samaritan woman by surprise, it would get Jesus into serious conflict later on with the religious establishment because the temple was the center of all Jewish worship. It was the temple that housed the priests and the sacrificial system. The temple was the place we looked at last week where, again, Jesus is turning over the tables to refocus everyone. And when we look at Jesus as a whole, we see Jesus was the end 
of the temple, both as the fulfillment of the priesthood and the sacrificial system. So when the temple's destroyed, literally, in AD 70, it's not a problem to those who follow Christ, because as Paul wrote, the temple was no longer a building, but the church. So what we see at this point is this relationship between worship and outreach, and that Jesus teaches us in this text that worship is not connected to a particular building or place. Now, as we continue, though, we get into this even more kind of meat, and it says this. True worship is a combination of spirit and truth. And we see that in 23 and 24. He says this. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What does Jesus mean when he says this? Well, worshiping in spirit is the opposite of worshiping in merely external ways. It's the opposite of empty formalism, traditionalism, and preferences. And the Samaritan woman, as did many Jews, thought that worship was essentially a matter of externals. She was preoccupied with the central place of worship. We see that in verse 20 on this mountain. The Jews thought of worship in terms of sacrifices, of rituals, of observances, of holy days, you name it. And all of us, literally all of us, struggle with this reality still today. We have preferences. We have externals that we think of that we know will make for an ideal worship experience for us. And people literally church shop to find the place that will deliver the things that they feel they need in order to have a good worship experience. All of us do this. But what we see here is that the essence of true worship is internal. It is in spirit, not external. Basically, Jesus says we shouldn't become so preoccupied with the externals, but rather with communion with God in our spirit. As the Holy Spirit works to communicate between our spirit and God's. Why? Well, it's because we can't manipulate the spirit like we can manipulate our externals. We can't manipulate the spirit like we can ex manipulate our externals. And we all like to be able to, to manipulate things to make it work for us. Now, worshiping in truth is the opposite of worshiping based on an inadequate view of God, which was essentially the way the Samaritans worshiped. Jesus is saying that worship is an issue of both the heart and the head, of feelings and thoughts, the spirit and the word. Why? Well, because if you just have truth without emotion, it produces an orthodoxy and a church that's full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, if it's all emotion without truth, that produces empty frenzy and shallow or superficial believers. And sadly, what I'm describing is the historic tension between Pentecostals and evangelicals, right, which pits excessive emotionality against excessive intellectualism. And I hope that you see this tension is so unfortunate and absolutely wrong. True worship 
as the scripture says, comes from people who are both deeply emotional and who love deep and sound theology. And what God wants from us is strong affections for him that are deeply rooted in the truth of God's word. Now, I don't know about you, and when it comes to one life, which one we embrace more fully here, but our goal is to hold both, right? The spirit and the truth together in a healthy balance. Now, this word, spirit, is this amazing word that we've seen over and over again from the very beginning of creation. It's the word in the Greek, pneuma, or in the Hebrew language, it's pronounced ruach. And it refers to the wind of God, the life-giving breath of God, the ultimate gift of grace that every single human being is experiencing right now, whether you are aware of it or not. It's the gift of life that you did absolutely nothing to earn, that without it, you are nothing. It says that we are supposed to worship in this spirit. And as Greg said last week, everything we do is worship. Why? Well, because at the very core of our being, we're created in the image of God, and it is only by this gift of the Spirit, this breath of God, that we can do anything. This is an internal act. The very fact that we are alive in this very moment, breathing, even if we aren't aware of it, in some way gives glory to God. This is why worship is what we do. Because without this breath, this spirit in us, we're not alive. We can do nothing. And so the picture here of the scriptures is that with every breath we breathe, in every moment, wherever we go, we would be doing so as an act of praise to God. Awake and aware to the fact that without this gift of the spirit, without this breath of God, we are completely incapable And so worshiping in spirit is constantly giving praise and glory to the one who literally gives us life. And when we do it, this causes us to be aware and awake to a life of purpose given to us by God. Which that is exciting to me. Now, I just want to make one more point about the importance of worshiping in truth as well. In verse 22, it says this, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Now, if you remember, the Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament except their own version of the Pentateuch. So so what Jesus is saying is that their knowledge of God was deficient. Therefore, their worship was deficient. In other words, it matters whether we know the one we worship or not. And it brings us back to the absolute importance of Jesus. It's why Jesus is the one life in our name, in our vision, that we focus on. It's critical that we know the one that we worship is Jesus Christ. And it's out of that truth, along with our spirit connecting with God, the giver of the very breath that we breathe, that comes our fuel for outreach. Now, I have a final point today about worship, and that is that worship in spirit and truth ultimately satisfies all of our longings in Christ. Now, I want you to think for a moment. 
every single person you know and see is breathing right now and in some form or fashion in worshiping because without it, they could be doing nothing. But I want you to picture the difference between breathing and breathing in a, uh, awake and awareness to the person who gave you that breath that has a purpose for you. It gives us a different view of life. And the thing is, is when we find ourselves connected to spirit and truth, we find our longings satisfied in God. And so when Jesus first approaches the Samaritan woman with this request for a drink of water, she is astonished that he would even speak to her. And when she says this, Jesus essentially ignores her question and tries to refocus her amazement. He's turning over her tables again, if you will. And he says this in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the really amazing thing is not that Jesus asks for a drink, but that she doesn't ask him, right? Because Jesus has living water, which is called this gift of God. But it's very clear that she doesn't get it. What does she say? She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's thinking more about the fact that this well, according to most scholars, was probably like 138 feet deep. You got no bucket. How are you going to hook me up with this water, right? So what does Jesus do? He, he tries to raise her level of amazement again and says this in verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water in this well is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, the amazing thing is not that Jesus can give her water without a bucket, but that it's this water that will satisfy forever. And even more so, when you drink it, your soul will become a living spring. So what exactly, then, is this water... That Jesus is talking about. And it's important when we get a question like this, we try to stay within the text that we're looking at. We don't want to jump all over the place. We want to look for clues from the author and from that particular book. And so, so are there any clues from John's gospel to help us understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about this living water? Well, one example is in John 6, 63. It says this, the spirit, Numa, gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. The words are full of spirit and life. So one possibility is that Jesus is saying that this is his teachings, that his literal words, the truth, brings life, which makes sense, right? But we see another text that's even closer parallel, and it says this, John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, Jesus meant the spirit, the pneuma, whom those who believed in him later were to receive. Now, in this case, the water Jesus gives us is the Holy Spirit, this breath of God, the pneuma, the ruach. So which is it? Is it the words or is it the pneuma? Is it the spirit? And I'd say both of these are true. Both the teaching of Jesus, the word of truth, and the Holy Spirit 
together satisfy the longings of our souls and make us fountains of life for others. And this fits with what Jesus says later in John. He says this, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So in other words, Jesus, as our example, held the word and the spirit together. The water that was offered to the Samaritan woman was the word of truth and the power of the Holy Spirit, both of which came to her through Jesus Christ alone. And that's what this true worship is, right? Satisfying ourselves in all that God has for us in Jesus. This is what the Father is seeking in and for everyone. People who will worship in spirit and truth with every breath. We breathe. Now, as we close, I want to close with a challenge for us to consider with regards to our own worship experience and how we worship. What does this worshiping in spirit and truth in 2017 look like for us in our daily life? What does it look like on a Sunday here? And I'd say in its most simplistic form, it's that we are doing a better job of recognizing the presence, the protection, the provision of God in everything we do and giving thanks. It's the work of giving thanks and glory to God. And we don't have to just do that on Sunday. Why do we come to church? Ultimately, it's to corporately connect with God, and as we corporately do so, we give thanks, we praise, we give glory to God. We remember what Christ did on the cross through communion. We sing songs that are rooted in theology, so we remember who Christ did. And Jesus says the Father is seeking those who will worship, who will show thanks, who will honor, who will praise, who will give reverence and glory in both heart and head, feelings and thoughts in spirit and in the truth of the word. So maybe to put it in its most simplest form, if we can't be thankful people, we definitely won't be worshiping people. If we can't be thankful people, we definitely won't be worshiping people. And if we can't find any reason to worship or to show praise to God who is the one worthy of it, then why would we ever share Jesus with anyone? Having a literal breath to breathe is worthy of God's praise because without it, we would be dead. And we did nothing to earn it or obtain it. So when you come to worship on a given Sunday like you did today, and you find your preferences or your opinions or your current life situation, your relationships, your desires, whatever it is getting in the way of your worship, I want you to take a few deep breaths and just pause and breathe and pray a simple prayer. God help all my externals not get in the way of my internal connections with your spirit and in truth. And I'm not saying that you should ignore the externals or that act like they aren't there, right? We all have our stuff that's going on in our life. But what I want us to do is that we bring those into this place and we honestly place them before God and say, God, with all of this I have, I still want to be able to remember you 
I want to breathe and give you praise and give you thanks, even in the midst of all these other externals. And when it comes to your day-to-day, you're not having your worship team follow you around. What does it look like to do this in your day-to-day? Well, maybe it's just a simple prayer throughout your day. Maybe it's taking a breath and just saying, God, help me to be more aware of your Holy Spirit's presence in my life right now. Literally giving you grace. Literally giving you a breath to breathe at every moment. That it would well up praise in you. That it would fuel an outward desire to love and care and serve those around you. When you're about to meet with that boss who stresses you out, take a deep breath. Give thanks that you are alive. When you have that stressful situation, when you're driving in traffic and you want to say whatever you want to those people driving around you, be thankful that you are safe in your car. Even in our most difficult situations, we, as followers of Christ, of all people, should be able to find a reason to give thanks at any moment because we know that our breath We are aware and awake to this gift, the spirit in our life, and we can connect with it. And our desire as a church, as we close, as followers of Jesus, is to connect with God, to worship in spirit and truth, to be aware of and experience all the reasons we have to give thanks for all the things that God has done for us, not just on Sundays, but every moment of our day. And that's to give God glory. As we close, I would like to invite our worship team to come forward, and um, if you would, please pull out that connection card. It looks like this. On the back, there's a section that says respond, and um, I just have a couple questions. Um, if you would be so kind as to answer one of them, or if not, you could answer all three. Um, it's just a way for us, again, to think about what we've talked about, what this looks like for us, um, which I'll get to the questions in a sec. Two weeks ago, we shared that on any given Sunday, what we are seeing is 40% of our church um, absent, not present with us. Or the other way of doing it is every Sunday we come together like we are right now, we are experiencing 60% of those who consider One Life their home present with us. And so as you think about that, again, it's not just any particular people always. It's always different every single week. We're running at 60% or we're missing 40%. And so the question that I have for you, number one, is when it comes to worshiping God in spirit and in truth like we talked about in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment life, what percentage of your day would you say is lived aware and awake to the presence of God? 40%? 60%? 10%? Is it one of those things where you walk in here and all of a sudden you're reminded and, and then when you leave, you're back to not remembering? What percentage are you aware of that? Number two, would you like this percentage to be higher? Would you like to be more aware and awake to the presence of God in your day-to-day, moment-by-moment life? Yes or no? Simple answer. And then number three, what's one thing you could do this week to help increase the amount of time you spend worshiping in spirit and in truth. And I hope you see, we didn't talk about instruments, we didn't talk about chords, we didn't talk about keys or hymns versus this or versus that. How can you just increase the amount of time you spend worshiping in spirit and truth in your day-to-day? If you would fill that out, that'd be great. And as you leave, if you could drop that in one of the wood boxes, 
Um, we'd love to see those. We'd love to pray for you, and that would be really fantastic. I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to end with a song, and uh, we can go and fellowship and be together. Uh, let me pray. God, uh, my family has been sick. And so when I sleep and I hear my wife having a hard time breathing, I'm aware of even something as simple as the gift of life from somebody else who's having a hard time breathing. And we're very thankful, Holy Spirit, that you are with us at every moment, at everything we do, you are with us in the most difficult most stressful, the most anxious, the most celebratory, the most glorious moments, you are there giving us life. God, we want to connect that truth with the truth of who you are, Jesus, with what you did on the cross for us, for your scriptures, your word that give us a, a vision of how to live. And God, we want to take both those spirit and truth and give you praise that would fuel us to reach out and share it with others. God, we believe you are doing that in our midst, reminding us of who you are, and it's exciting. And so, God, we just ask that you would continue to move, and not just here on Sundays. God, as we walk out of this place and we see the beauty of your creation, the sunshine, let us give you praise. Help us take a breath and remember your presence. God, even now as we corporately enter into worship, let's do so, God, connected to you in spirit and in truth. You are so good. We are overwhelmed by all the good things you've done for us, and we're thankful for an opportunity to remember that. Help us not to forget. Help us to give you praise. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.